So how's everybody doing? Yeah, good to see you. Uh, hey, can I ask you guys a question? How many of you are like in full Christmas mode, tree, lights, decorations, all that? All right, cool, cool. Uh, I, I am, we're, at our house, we are in full Christmas mode. Um, after church on Sunday, we all went, um, you know, my wife and my two kids, we went, we bought the tree, and then I had the pleasure of strapping it to the roof of my car, uh, because that's just, nothing says Jesus' birthday than like strapping a tree to your car. And um, and so then I got down all the bins from the garage because we have like 50 bins for all the lights, Christmas ornaments and all this stuff. So I got them out. Uh, we, we did all the lights. You know, my daughter and I, we, we put all the lights on the tree. Then our whole family, we did. Um, we put all the ornaments on the tree. Then, of course, the next thing was take the ladder outside and then put up uh, all the lights on the outside because that just makes a lot of sense. You bring a tree in, put lights out and um and I'm telling you, it's the 6th of December, and I am exhausted uh, from all this Christmas stuff. I told my wife, I said, I'm just letting you, I'm putting you on notice that next year we're celebrating Hanukkah. Um, nine candles and a menorah, and you're done. I'm telling you, the Jewish people have it right. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is this, is that, you know, you start, Christmas time comes around, and you start thinking about the wise men, right? I don't know why people actually think about the wise men, because we had to get our nativity scene down. And our nativity scene isn't like this little nativity scene. It's got like these 12-inch action figures that, you know, I mean, these guys are humongous. And so then there's, um, so there's the, you know, there's the 12-inch action figures. And if you've been around here for a while, you know that I don't actually know why the wise men are in the nativity scene. Because if you actually read the, the account in Matthew chapter 2, they showed up a year and a half later. Uh, and so you say, well, all right, yeah, you can read it later. They showed up. Jesus was not an infant in the manger. He was actually a toddler living in a house, and that's when they showed up. But, see, it doesn't just look as nice as, like, you have a picture of, like, a regular house and them knocking, like, hello, is this the right place? Uh, there's, I, there's a star outside. Is this yours? Um, and so, but it's just kind of a weird thing. And then my wife and I always have this conversation. She tells me that they were wise, if they, you know, if they were wise women and not wise men, they would have gotten there on time because it was, they would have stopped and asked directions. Um, and uh, and so, you know, they stopped, they give the gold frankincense and myrrh, or as my nephew likes to say, they gave gold frankenstein and myrrh. I'm not really sure how you give frankenstein as a gift. But uh, but those aren't the wise men I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you actually about the original wise men. These wise men, uh, they, they pre- predate the wise men in the Christmas story by about uh, a millennia, by, by about a thousand years. And I want to talk to you about a group of four wise men that, in fact, the Bible calls exceedingly wise. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, it means this. It means wiser than the wisest. So, I mean, these people, these four guys are like as wise as they come. They're like the fantastic four of wisdom. And yet we rarely think about them because of how small they are. They don't make a lot of noise. And because of that, they don't tend to get a lot of attention. But I want to tell you this is that the manage the man, the manner in which they live is exceptional. It's amazing. And here's the reason why they're exceptional, because if we would watch them and analyze them as we're going to take the time to do today, if we would actually model some of what they do in our lives, here's the thing that's incredible. We would experience the same kind of wisdom that they have. It's an incredible thing. And uh, now I do need to tell you this. They're not actually wise men. Um, they're bugs. Uh, so I'm just, you know, I maybe misled you a little bit, but uh, they're bugs. There's actually a wise ant, a wise rock badger, a, ro- a wise locust, and a wise spider. And you say, now that's why I got out of bed, to hear about a wise spider. Uh, did he climb up the water spout? Um, and, and maybe he did. And, uh, and, but here's the thing. Solomon, our writer, our writer Solomon, here's what he does. 
he, he, in, in this incredible wisdom that he has, he just observes what, the, what this ant does, what this rock badger does, what this uh, locust does, what this spider does. And he watches them and he says, they model for us incredible wisdom and, and just a, a, a specific type of wisdom that each of them has. And here's what I know to be true, is that if you and I would actually do what these four wise men, these four wise bugs do, if we would actually watch them, then here's what would take place. We would be amazed and we would be much wiser people because of it. And so we're going to drill down a little bit in Proverbs chapter 30. So if you would, if you'd open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 30. And uh, you, may, you have some notes there to follow along with as a supplement, but you're going to want to be in Proverbs 30. And we're in a series called Vintage Wisdom as we're working our way through the book of Proverbs, taking some of the major themes in the book. And so we're going to drill down on these four guys, these, these pillars, these unlikely wise men. So it's going to be Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 24. And here we go. It says, there are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are, not, are, are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to stop there and we're going to start in that spot. Now, here's what I want to tell you. There's going to be four points for these four wise men. And here's the first. The first is this, is that the wise prepare for what's coming. They prepare for what's coming. Now, um, I know that most of us are talking about Christmas, but I just want to think maybe a little bit beyond Christmas for a second, and that a lot of people are now starting to think about January 1st and all the, the changes and all the things that they're going to do once January 1st comes around, because everybody's got their resolutions, right? So we have these resolutions that we say we're going to do, and then, you know, by the time Martin Luther King's birthday comes around, we've forgotten all about them, and we've gotten depressed because we didn't do them. And so, but here's the thing that happens. This is kind of the way that it tends to work in your life and my life and most people's lives, and I want to tell you why, why that is. Now, here's what, what tends to happen is that we make these outlandish resolutions, and some of us are bold enough to just write them down, but most of us will say something like this. In 2010, I'm going to go to the gym every single day. I'm going to go to the gym every single day in 2010. And then here's what happens. You wake up January 1st. You go to the gym and find out it's a holiday and it's closed. You say, well, all right, well, I'm just going to keep, well, I'm just going to eat a box of Twinkies and I'm going in the morning. And so you say, you're going to go and then you go and then maybe that week you go a few more times. You miss a day because something happened. You overslept, um, you know, whatever. Then like a couple, you know, week, another week goes by. By the third week, you haven't gone in like two weeks. And then you say, well, I'm going to at least drive by the gym every day. I mean, that's going to kind of lower it. Then you don't, and you just say, you know what? I'm going to make friends with a guy named Jim, and we're just going to call it even for 2010, and, that, and that'll be it. And, and here was the problem. You say, well, well, why doesn't it ever really work? And here becomes the problem. It becomes the problem is that we never prepared beforehand for the task that we wanted to accomplish. That's the wisdom of the ant. The, the ant is always preparing because he knows that winter is coming. In the same way, one of the reasons that we don't actually do what the wise ant does, we miss out on the opportunities and these opportunities that we have to change is because we, we didn't prepare beforehand. I, I talked to people, and here's what, some, uh, here's what someone said to me a while ago. They said, uh, you know, come the new year, I'm going to run two miles every day. I said, well, that's a good goal. I said, but can I ask you a question? How far do you run now? And they said, uh, I don't know, like 50, 60 feet. And I'm like, well, I mean, you may want to like throttle back that two miles, you know, to like maybe like a tenth of a mile. and Let's see how that goes. Um, but it, and here's the reason why it doesn't usually work is because there's just a lack of preparation. Um, I'll, I'll talk to someone and this, this, this comes up all the time. And I encourage people to do this, but just with a little bit of foresight and preparation. 
But someone will say, I'm going to read through the entire Bible in 2010. And I'll say, that is an awesome goal to have. I think that that is a great goal to have for a new year that's starting, to say, I'm going to read through the entire Bible uh, in a year. Very possible. You can do it. But this is the thing that I usually ask. I say, well, how much of the Bible do you read a day right now? Well, I'm hovering right around zero. Okay, well, see, that, that probably needs to change. So, but this is the reason why. It's because saying you're going to go from zero to like four, five, six, seven chapters a day, which is about a 30-minute, 40-minute commitment a day, starting from zero. But, but I, here's what I usually tell people. See, instead of doing that, why don't you do this? Why don't you take December and take part of the Bible reading plan that you're going to do and take December and start working out the plan to see if it actually works so that come January, you know if you're going to do it or not. Instead of saying, I'm going to do it, making a big thing about it, then you don't do it and you get depressed because you, you, know, you say, well, it didn't really work out. You see... As I said before, that's the thing that makes the ants so wise. They're in constant preparation for what's coming next. You see, if, if, if you want to be wise like the ant in 2010, here's what you have to do. You have to prepare. If your goal is to get out of debt in 2010, that's a great goal. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'd encourage you to take December and read a book on financial management, and you'll be ready for January 1st. You say, I'm going to lose X number of pounds in, in 2010. That's a great goal. And I would encourage you to do that. But here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Read a book on nutrition uh, or exercise between now and then. If your goal is to read through the entire Bible, then spend the last couple of weeks of 2009 getting yourself ready before that's what it is that you're committing to. And you'll see on on the back of your connection card that you filled out earlier on the back, it says my next step is it'll say have a 2010 Bible reading plan. And so if you check that off, I will send you the through the through my uh, the plan that I use to read through the Bible every year. And uh, we'll email that to you. So make sure you put your email on the front and then you have that on the back. When we collect all the cards at the end, we'll get that. We'll get that for you. Um, but the b- book of Proverbs, chapter 21, says this. It says good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts leads to poverty. Now, I'm in the process of thinking through my goals for 2010, and, here, and I'll be honest with you. Here's one of the ones that I'm thinking, and this, let's underscore that, thinking about, thinking about this. Um, I, I read this book a couple weeks ago that like, really had an impact on me, and one of the things that just so impressioned me was um, that the guy in the book read through the Gospels every week for a year. Now, at the end of the book, he says, well, I said I was going to do it. I did it 32 I read the Gospels 32 times over the course of, of the year, which I think still is pretty good. But I thought, man, that would be a great goal to, to, to do is uh, to read through the Gospels every week for a year. And then 52 times through the Gospels. I said, man, I think that's great. But I said, before I write that down, let me try it once and see how it is. And so I did it. And uh, it's hard. You know, it is. And, I, you know, and because and I, I, I said when I was going to do it, I wasn't going to speed read. I was just going to read through the Gospels. Uh, and I did listen to some to the Bible on my iPod a little bit. Um, but, but here's the thing that's amazing. You know, it's like 12, 13 chapters a day. So, I mean, it is a solid hour to 90 minute commitment every day to do that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do something else um, and just read through the Bible like I normally do. And, but the thing is this, is that the reason that people make resolutions, make things, say, I'm going to do this beginning of the year and it doesn't happen is, is, is this, is that they haven't um, they, they haven't counted the cost. They've made, it, they've made a rash commitment, and then uh, they, ne- they, didn't, they didn't follow through. In um, the, the same writer, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, not in your notes, but if you just jot down Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let me read you, starting in verse 2. This is what it says. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before the Lord. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you've vowed, for better not to vow than to vow and not pay. The idea is this. Don't make a commitment and then at the end say, well, I was going to, God, I was going to read through it, but then I didn't. Or I was going to do this, but then I didn't. Better to not make the goal. Instead, what's better is to prepare and say, am I really going to do this? Now, this is the thing that's so different. And I, I want to contrast kind of our culture with another culture. Um, what we do, like on December 31st, is that, you know, people either go to Times Square um, or we, if you don't go to Times Square, you just watch it on TV. People drink too much. And they say, hey, what would you do for New Year's? I don't even remember. Must have been a good one. You know, that, that kind of deal, right? And yet here's the thing, is that so there's no, like, real thought, like, forethought or planning as we go into a new year. But here's the thing. The Hebrew culture is much different than, than, than ours. Um, the Hebrew culture, as you know, uh, or may not know, uh, that because they operate on a, a different calendar uh, than us, they, they operate on a uh, lunar calendar, which is 360 days, as opposed to our solar calendar, which is 365 and a quarter days. Um, so we celebrate New Year's, on obviously, on January 1st. They celebrate New Year's around September, October, uh, right, around, uh, right around there. And then here's what happens. What happens is, uh, is that, as, as you may be aware, they, have, they sell uh, New Year's in a Jewish culture is called Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year, so the beginning of the year, is the beginning of a mark of this period of ten days that's called the Yamim Noreim. Now, the Yamim Noreim means, in Hebrew, uh, the days of awe. The days of awe is actually ten days, starting from Rosh Hashanah, and it ends on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And here's the thing. We're like, in our culture, everybody's like going crazy, partying, going wild. Here's what the Jewish culture is doing. The Jewish culture is having a, these ten days at the beginning of the year to really contemplate and think about and reflect on their lives and what they've done in the last year and what they want to eliminate and take into the new year and the changes that they want to make. So while a lot of us are flocking to Times Square or watching it on TV, here's, here's what an, an observant Jew is doing. He's going to synagogue and reading Genesis chapter 21. You say, well, why, why Genesis 21? Why not Genesis 1? Why not somewhere, uh, anything else? Because there's two things that happen in Genesis 21 that are extremely important. First is, what the rabbis teach, is that on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah is when uh, Isaac, the son of the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, was born. Now, there's no actual evidence for that, so it's a little more of a tradition than anything. So, But the other thing is this, is that if you know the story, if you don't, let me just recap it in 30 seconds. Um, but this is like something that you find like on the Lifetime channel, what I'm about to tell you, you know, the story in, in Genesis. And here's what it is. Um, God promises to Abraham that he's going to have a son, except that he's like really, really, really old. Um, he's like almost hitting triple digits old. And um, his wife is just a few years younger than him. And so his wife says, listen, we're really past the age of, of having children. But why don't you take my, my handmaiden, you know, this, this woman who, you know, works for us, um, and why don't you... Um, why don't you, you know, have relations with her and then she'll have a son and then we'll raise the child like like it was ours. And so Abraham very reluctantly, I'm sure, says, OK. And um, <laughs> and uh, and so then he does his thing with this woman by the name of Hagar. And then um, that she gives birth to a child by the name of Ishmael. And Ishmael is born. And then God says to God uh, or Abraham says to God, he says, Lord, may Ishmael live before you. And God says, no, you're going to have a son. The promise that I gave you still stands. Even if you're going to do all this other stuff, the promise still stands. 
Well, sure enough, now in Genesis 21, that, that uh, Sarah becomes, becomes pregnant. And then she gives, she gives birth to a son whose name is Isaac. And uh, the, the child is born. But then there's a, there's a problem here. Because there's the one that maybe we thought could be the child of promise. And then there's the one that is the child of promise. And so now there's all this conflict that's taking place. So much so that now Sarah says to Abraham, um, you're going to have to do something because this whole thing is ripping our family apart. And then he prays and God says to him, I want you to send away Hagar uh, and Ishmael. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to take care of them. Uh, in fact, if you're not aware, uh, the, the Arab people today are descendants of Ishmael, as uh, the Hebrew people are the descendants uh, of, uh, of Isaac. But there is this spiritual component, this, this, this typology that's created here in this. And that is this, that there is the child of the flesh that is the product and the works of my flesh. But then there's also... The, the product of God's spirit working in us. And so there's like the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And in fact, let me have the Apostle Paul um, explain it to you. This is in your notes in Galatians chapter four. This is what it says. It says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. At that time, the son born in, in the ordinary way or, or in other translation would say, according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the, uh, for the slave woman's son will not share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so here's the big deal about what happens at, an, at New Year's. In, in, the, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish worldview, you go to synagogue and you read Genesis 21, and this is a reminder. What is happening spiritually in my life that I want to take into the next year? And then what, is, what are the things that are preventing me from really walking with God? Those things that are Ishmael, that are after the flesh, that I want to cut off and drive away so that I can fully live for God the way that he wants me to. You see, and that has to start not January 1, that has to start now. As we prepare for January 1 to actually be the people that God wants us to be so that when we get to January 1, we're already making the strides that God wants us to make instead of getting to January 1. And now we're still struggling to get rid of the stuff that then so we can actually um, now truly live for how God wants us to do. And what the ant does is this. The ant shows us over and over and over again the value of preparing for what God is bringing to us next. See, that's just the wisdom of one. Let me give you the wisdom uh, of the other one. This is in verse 26, back to Proverbs chapter 30. Here's what we read. It says, the rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, um, some of you are wondering, like, I, there's no, there's no, um, I haven't seen a rock badger here in Miami any time, any recently. Um, now, let me give you the point, and then I'll explain what makes this rock badger so wise. Um, the first is that the, the wise prepare for what's coming. The second is the wise acknowledge their need for help. They acknowledge their need for help. I'm, I'm trying to teach my daughter this. Uh, my daughter is a couple, you know, she'll, she's going to turn three at the end of next month. And um, every time I try to help her with something, like she's trying to do something, and I'll say, uh, Mia, do you want me to help you? And she'll say, no, Bobby, all by myself. And she says it like in this little, it's almost like a song, you know, like, all by myself. That's how she says it. And uh, so I'm like, well, are you sure I can help you? No, all by myself. And then she can't do it. And she gets upset. And then she hands it to me. And she says, Papi, you help me. And I say, yeah, sure, I'll help you. And then 
Uh, we kind of do this thing over and over and over again. But here's the wisdom of, of the rock badger. Uh, the, the rock badger actually is not indigenous um, to us. It's, it's indigenous to the Judean wilderness in Israel. And uh, the rock badger does this. It's not a strong creature by any means. Most creatures there in the wilderness would be able to take it out. But when it senses danger, this is what it does. It actually hides in the crags or literally in the cleft of a rock. And if you've ever been to Israel or seen pictures, um, then you see like the way that the mountains work is that they're almost like, um, like in li- like, so it looks almost like shelving, the way that they, um, they do their vegetation and stuff. So a lot of times there's just this side of a rock uh, on this mountain or on this hill. And so in these little openings is where they hide to keep uh, from, from being destroyed. And, and this is the thing that would happen. Like, well, why is that actually seen as wisdom? Wouldn't that really be seen as weakness? And it's not. It's actually, it's not weakness, but what it is, is wisdom and humility. The Bible tells us this. It's there in the notes. It says that the Lord mocks the mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And a lot of times, especially in our culture, humility is viewed as weakness, but it's really not. It's great wisdom. Now, what is humility? Maybe you want to write this down somewhere. But here's what humility is. This is my definition, um, which is right. Um, and and <laughs> here, here it is. It's know, humility is this knowing who I am in light of who God is. Very simple. It's knowing who I am in light of who God is. And it's not that I think less of myself or I think more of myself, but it's what Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says is that I should have a sober estimation of who I am. That is that I don't think less of who I am. I don't think more of who I am, but I have a sober estimation of who the person God created me to be. You see, pride is just the opposite. Pride is having an inflated view of myself by making light of who God is, as opposed to knowing who I am in light of who God is. Now, this is where I think, you know, the place of humility is where we can see God work in our lives more than at any other time. I want you to think about this. My wife and I were just having this conversation recently. We were talking about King David. Uh, This is at our house one night after dinner. We were just talking about having this whole conversation about King David. And she was saying, like, isn't it amazing that God forgives King David, even though David was a liar, he was a murderer, he was an adulterer. And I said, yeah, and I said, here's the part that's also amazing to me, is that at the same time, King Saul, who wasn't those things, God constantly opposed him, and yet every time he did something wrong, God would say, I've rejected you as king. And it's like, isn't that so interesting? And this is part of our, uh, you know, conversation we were having after dinner one night is, you know, isn't it fascinating how... This guy who just commits these, like, grievous sins, God forgives. And this other guy who maybe just has some, some errors in judgment, some might say, God constantly opposes. Well, and it's like, well, doesn't that seem a little bit unfair? And it's now we have to take the step back and look at it from a different perspective. And here's what it is. The thing about David's life, King David's life, is that every time he messed up, no matter how great and how small, when he finally came to the place of realizing, I have messed up before God. He was broken, he was humbled, and he would just pray and say, God, I need you to forgive me because I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. And that's, that's the heart. It's not that there still weren't consequences to his actions. There were plenty of consequences to his actions. But here's the thing that, that would take place, is that as he asked for God to forgive him, he would experience the forgiveness and grace of God. Saul, on the other hand, it was a different thing. Saul's mistakes were all about him. And every time it was, well, what about the Lord? No, 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 it's going to be what I'm going to do. It's because I'm the king, and that's when God says, you know what, I've rejected you as king. And, I'm, and in fact, just in, in really uh, strong words, he says, and in fact, I'm going to find someone who's better than you to be king. 
And here's the reason that God constantly opposed Saul. It's because of this. It's because he was tr- we could say that actually Saul was trusting in God or in a God, but he had set up a God of himself. Where that's, that's what pride does. Pride says, I don't need anybody else. I don't need anybody else's help. It's all about me. And if it's all about me, then here's the deal. Then it's, I, I can solve all my own problems, and here's what God does. He opposes that person. Because God can work with a person that's humble and recognizes, hey, I'm nothing apart from who God is. But the person who says, no, I stand in pride and it's just about me, God continually opposes that person because they already have a God in their life themselves. But see, I think that there's something else. There's something, I think, maybe to, to a different degree and maybe a different level. And that, and that is this, that Solomon would see that rock badger hiding in the cleft of a rock and he would say, that is a picture of wisdom. It's a picture of wisdom because it's a picture for us to see God work in our lives. We have to recognize our need for help and our need for God in our lives. Let me read you this passage from Exodus 33. Check this out. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But you must, but my face, you must, must not be seen. Now let me just tell you the, the, the whole deal here. The point is this. It was when Moses was in the cleft of the rock, just like when the rock badger says, I'm going to have, this is my defense against my enemies. When Moses was in the cleft of the rock, he experienced and saw the glory of God like he had never seen and experienced in his life. And it's in the same way like you and I, when we have the wisdom of the rock badger who says this, that I cannot do this all on my own. And instead, when I put my trust, my faith, my hope in the living God, that we can actually trust all kinds of things. And listen, a lot of times we say, well, man, I'm trusting in God and all that. But let's be let's be real honest. Uh, Sometimes we say we're trusting in God, but really trusting in the position that we have. Sometimes we say we're trusting in God, but we're really talking. We're really trusting in the person of power that we know. Sometimes we say we're trusting in God, but really we're trusting in the money and the resources that we have or somehow can get access to. But instead, here's what Moses learned is that when I put my complete faith, hope and trust in God, I see and experience the glory of God in my life like at no other time. The Bible says in Psalm 94, verse 22, it says, but the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. That is the wisdom of the rock badger, that I recognize and acknowledge my need for help. And when I do, God puts me in the cleft of the rock and I see his glory like never before. Let me show you the third wise man that we see. This is back to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. It says, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the, the point for your outline. It says, the wise understand the power of us. The power of us. What do I mean? If you just saw a locust, if a locust crawled up on the stage, I could step on it and it would be and it would be over. 
But see, a swarm of locusts, a swarm of locusts will actually inspire terror in people. A swarm of locusts can go to a field, to a crop, and actually wipe it out within the matter of a couple of minutes. That's the power of us. That's the power of not one locust, but many locusts working in unison, knowing that if all of us work together, now something amazing can happen. Some of you know that my, probably my favorite Bible character is John the Baptist. Um, I love John's wildness. I love his passion. I love his preaching. I will say this. I'm not that fond of his um, culinary skills, you know, uh, you know, because check out what the Bible says It's in your notes. John wore clothing of camel's hair and uh, he with a leather belt around his uh, around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. You know, some of you know that I have this deep, deep love for peanut butter. Uh, I mean, I I kid you not. Someone someone asked me this morning. They said, Bob, how much peanut butter do you actually eat? I go through like two jars of peanut butter a week. That's how committed I am. Uh, some of you say you need to be committed, and maybe you're right. So that's like how serious I am about peanut butter. In the same way I love peanut butter, that's how John was about his locust and, and wild honey. In fact, I, you ever think about this? Like, I, you know, once again, some of you know I wrote a book about John the Baptist. Um, this is the first book I wrote. And, and here's the thing is that, you know, when John was preaching these amazing messages and baptizing people, right? And John is um, saying, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the religious leaders show up and he says this. I love this phrase. He says, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Next time when you go to lunch uh, sometime and you got a bunch of your friends, call them brood of vipers. It's a great conversation starter. Um, so, you know, or not, whatever. Um, so check it out. So he says, now, I, I'm always amazed by that because... All the, you know, all the baptizing that he was doing, all the energy was powered by like this locust and wild honey sandwich that he had eaten that morning. And, and, and this is the deal. And this is the, the amazing thing about John is that people would see John. And this is what they would ask him. They would say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? You know, I've been a pastor for a long time now, and nobody has ever confused me with Jesus. Even once. You know, sometimes, like, I've never even met, nobody's even ever said after a message, you know, your voice is just angelic. I've never been confused for an angel. No, nothing. You know, nothing. Um, the only thing anybody's ever said is if somebody does a movie about your life, you should get Jack Black to play you. That's like the closest I've gotten. Been compared to Jack Black, but never to Jesus or, or an angel. Um, but he, check it out. This is the thing that's amazing to me, because I think if people started confusing me with Jesus... Um, one, I'd probably like it too much. And B, I'd probably kind of ham it up a little bit. But check out what John says. He says this. Uh, it says, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. This is what he said. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Now, see, I got to tell you, just to be honest, that I think if somebody would have asked me, you know, at back then, are, are, Bob, are you... Because, you know, Bob's a very Hebrew name. Um, um, are you the Messiah? And I've, I've got to be honest. I think I'd probably be like, no, I'm not. But, you know, I was, it was offered to me. Uh, God offered it to me. I looked over the job description and I'm like, you know, I don't really like these hours. Um, not that good. And, uh, you know, the health care is kind of so-so. And, uh, and so I decided to go against it. I thought maybe being, being the opening act would be better than, you know, and, and here's what John does. He could have had this whole power trip and he didn't. In fact, he even goes further. What I read to you was John 1.20. Let me just go a couple verses more. Here's what he says in John 1.24. 
He says, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. This was this ultra strict um, sect of, of, of Judaism. And they asked him, saying, then why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there is one who stands among you whom you do not know. He is coming after me, who was preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, your sandal strap was basically like saying, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. Now, I want you to understand. Now, we might say, like, wow, that's like very humble for him to say. But that is actually um, a very, the, the phrase is like very pregnant with meaning. Now, let me kind of explain why. Is that um, rabbis, when they, when you had a, a rabbi that, that came on the scene, one of the things that he would do is um, seek to take disciples. You know, Jesus had disciples. What a lot of plant people don't know is that even John the Baptist had disciples. In fact, when um, later in the, in the Gospel of John, same chapter, chapter 1, if you read a little more later, here's what you'll find. Is that he tells, he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he tells his disciples to stop following him and start following Jesus as their rabbi. Now you've got to understand that the goal of being a rabbi was to propagate your teaching. So what you're trying to find is the best of the best students of the Hebrew Scriptures who would be able to then take your teaching and learn it as well as you know it, and then to be able to teach it to future and future generations. And that's how the greatest rabbis, that's how even to this day we still have their teaching, is because they chose the best of the best to be their disciples. So what happens is this, is that one of the things that you had to do as a disciple, this was one of the rules to to decide if you were going to follow a rabbi, was that you had to do whatever he asked of you to do. Because what you had to understand is that what, everything that he was asking of you to do had a direct correlation to the, to the education and instruction that you were getting. And um, maybe you remember the story in John chapter 4, if not, you can read it later, that Jesus, uh, the disciples go into town to get some food. And then Jesus stays at this well and has this great conversation with a woman uh, at the well, right? And then the disciples come back and they've got like their grocery bags. And then um, he says to them something about my food is to do the will of God, to do the will of the one who sent me. And then they turn to each other and they're like, did we not buy the right groceries? Is that the whole thing? And then he's like, no. And then he says to them, don't you understand that the harvest is plentiful? That right now the fields are white for harvest. The time is now to reach people. And so the thing that should be hungering you is doing the will of God. You see, it's something as simple as that. They went in town to get food, but what they didn't realize when they came back is that there was going to be a lesson in motivation. And so the idea was this, is that you did everything that your rabbi asked you to do because there was a lesson behind everything that he asked you to do. But there was one thing that a disciple, or in Hebrew would be the word Talmud, or if you had disciples, it would be Talmudim, uh, uh, which is this, the word we translate as disciples or learners. Um, but this, theirs is the one thing that you didn't have to do. And they said the only thing that a, that a Talmud, a disciple, does not have to do is loosen the sandals of their rabbi. Because that was work that was reserved for someone who was a servant or a slave. And so when John says, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes or to untie his shoes, he's saying, not only am I not worthy to be his Talmud, his disciple, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. That's the kind of humility that we're talking about with John. You see, um, John was a guy that understood something, that when it's just me, I can't really do a lot. That's why I said, you know, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. 
But he knew this, that when I do my part and everyone else does their part, amazing things happen. That's the wisdom of the locusts. The locusts show up, one, and there's not much that can be done. But when they show up in their swarms and they show up, they can wipe out an entire field. Why? Because when everyone is working together, doing their part, amazing things happen. Too often, here's what we do, is that we look on and we say, man, somebody should do something about that. And then we kind of sometimes sit back, and all of us do this at times. We sit back and think, well, I guess somebody will do something about that at some point. And maybe what God is asking us to do is, well, maybe if you do your part, somebody else will do their part, and this other person will do their part, and then some movement begins to happen because the solution it doesn't just usually lie in one person. The solution lies in all of us doing something together that makes some amazing movement take place. That's the story of this new Miramar campus that, that, we're, that we're starting. It's amazing to me um, that, we, that you know, we, we stood up about a month ago and we said, hey, we need a bunch of people who live up in that area to make the move. And right now there's about 75 people that, that are serving or have said, I'm going to start serving um, when I get there. And people are being trained and all of that, which is amazing. People who are staying here have said, hey, I know that there's some vacancies that have been opened because of this. So I want to step up and serve to a greater degree. Why? Everybody just doing, doing their part. One of the things that we said was, hey, it's going to take about $50,000 to make this campus happen. And here's, what, and here's the thing that was amazing about this church is that nobody sat back and thought, well, somebody's just got to write a $50,000 check and then the problem solved, right? But here's what everybody said. I might not be able to do all of it, but I might be able to do some of it. And here's what I know is that if I do my part and the person next to me does their part and the person next to them does their part and the person on the row behind me does their part and the person all the way in the back does their part and the person all the way in the front does their part and if we all do this together then here's what can happen amazing movement can take place once again we made this announcement like a month ago and uh, between people who have given and the pledges to give between now and January 31st we've seen like 35,000 of the 50,000 committed um, and then we had this benefit concert on Friday night how many of you are at the concert Right? Great. Yeah. Had a good time. Um, this side of the room was a little better represented than that side. I don't know what that means, but uh, we'll talk later. Um, but here's what happens. Um, but here's what happens is that I don't know if you know this, uh, but we raised like over $5,000 on Friday night for the new campus in Miramar. Now, that's amazing because here's what happens. Now it takes like a month ago, it was like 50, you know, it's going to take 50000 and we're at zero. A month later, everybody's saying, I think, you know, if I do my part, somebody else's their part, all of us working together, great things can happen. Now we're at 40 of the 50. And now, now it's going to say, well, what about the other 10? Well, some people haven't, you know, said, hey, I'm going to do this yet. Um, and so let me encourage you in this. If you haven't done it, then say, hey, um, I, want, I want to be part of this movement, this thing that's happening as well. And listen, that's the wisdom of the locust. The locust teaches us that one of us may not be able to make a big difference, but if one of us and the next person and if all of us move in the same direction, amazing things can happen. Let me give you the last one. Number four, it's verse 28. It says this. It says, the spider skillfully grasps with its hands and it is in king's palaces. Now, uh, let me, the, the, the point is this. Uh, the point of the spider is that the wise are constantly persevering. They're constantly persevering. You see, it's amazing to me that Solomon looks up and in his, in his, in, in his, um, his, in, from his throne and he sees in his palace a spider. And he says, now that is a picture of wisdom. Why? 
because the spider wasn't born in the palace. The spider was born outside, but here's what it did. The spider just kept spinning its web and it broke and it kept spinning its web and it broke. And somehow it just kept getting closer and closer. And the next thing you do, Solomon looks up and he sees a spider and he says, now that is a bug that just wouldn't quit. You see, can I, who can we learn the most about, about perseverance and not giving up? Can I just tell you this? Kids. Kids are like the most relentless people on the planet. Um, it, it, it's incredible. You know, kids don't get discouraged. They just, you know, like kids will ask their parents something. Their parents will say no. And they'll say, well, it's been 30 seconds. Maybe they changed their mind. And then they'll ask them again. They say, well, I asked in the living room. Now they're in the kitchen. Maybe that'll change their mind. Uh, now they're in the backyard. For sure they've changed their mind now. I'm telling you, I get, I get home and my daughter says, it's one of two things. It's either can we play hide and go seek or Papi, can we play tag? And um, I, I'm not even kidding. Um, after the first service, I came out because I usually come out when my wife, uh, my wife attends the first service usually. And so I, I we came out and um, uh, my daughter comes running to me, right? She comes running from out of the children's ministry to see me. She picks up Papi, she gives me a kiss and she says, Papi, let's play tag. And I'm like, you know, I got something going on here in a couple of minutes. I, I'm like running around is not like, was it? okay, five seconds later, hey, I know, let's play tag. You know, that's what she does when I get home. Um, and she does this every day, but the problem is she's not yet three, and so she doesn't remember that she does this every day. She just thinks that this is a brand new strategy that she comes up with each day. But I'll get home from the office, and here's what she'll do. Uh, I'll get home from the office, and she, she hears the door, and she comes running towards me. She jumps. I catch her, and I pick her up, and I give her a kiss, and she gives me a kiss and big hugs and all that. And then this is what, um, and then this is what she does. She'll say, um, oh, I know. Let's play hide-and-go-seek. And it's like, well, she doesn't realize. Like, she does, um, I know. Let's play hide-and-go-seek or let's play tag. She does that every day. And so, but that's like, that's like her strategy and she just doesn't stop. And I'm telling you, that's the wisdom of the spider is that it just keeps persevering because if you persevere long enough, then you get to the place where you ultimately want to be. And listen, that's one of the things I believe the lessons that God wants to teach us when it comes to prayer is to continually and constantly persevere. The Bible would tell us this. It would tell us in uh, Matthew chapter seven, it would say, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask. Keep on not, uh, seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. For everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, here's what happens. Too many times we pray once and then we give up thinking that God doesn't want to answer our prayer. But what if this is the case? What if we pray and God says, you know what? I'm going to answer that. But I'm going to need you to pray about that a hundred times. Like, What? And then, well, why is that? And then we'll pray maybe about something like 10 or 12 or 15 or 97, and then we'll just give up. Instead, maybe what God wants to do is for not us to think of him as a spiritual ATM where we just, you know, call in, punch in our, you know, pin number and then we kind of get what we want. But instead, maybe prayer has a, a, a dual application, and that is that God's trying to actually build character, endurance and perseverance into our lives. Well, now it changes the whole thing and that maybe what Jesus is saying is right, that we keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and that we don't stop praying until God, unless God tells us to stop. Because that's the whole point of persevering, is that for God to build something in us. 
that we might become the people that he wants us to be. You know, if you're, if you're a person and maybe you've prayed about something for a long period of time, then you'd be able to testify that this is true. And here's what it is, is that as you've prayed for something, maybe you've prayed for something for two or five or however many years, and the more that you've prayed about it, and, and you'd probably agree with this, that even over the course of the years that your prayer for that very thing has changed. You say, well, why is that? The reason that the prayer has changed is because you've changed. Your heart has changed. God's been molding and shaping your spirit in such a way so that here's what happens, is that now you get to a place of a couple of years later, and then God fulfills the thing that he promised to do, just like he fulfilled the thing the promise that he made to Abraham and to Sarah, and you get the, the, the promise that he said. You say, well, how does it work out that way? Oh, because the whole point of the praying for that long is that God was trying to transform you into the person that you would eventually become, and it was that person who was going to be able to receive the answer to the prayer and the blessing that he wanted to give. But you had to go through the process to become that person to get there to be able to receive what it was that God was seeking to give you. That's the power of understanding the wisdom of the spider is that we just don't give up because it's in the process that we become the people that God wants us to be. And the way that we see this is so perfectly modeled is in the person of Jesus. The last verse in your outline, it says this. It says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is greater than man's strength. You see, there's something that happens when you and I model our lives after the pattern of Jesus. Here's what happens. Is that we find ourselves living the kind of wise lives that these four small little bug creatures teach us about. And that's why everything that God is doing in your life and in mine is to try to mold us and shape us and transform us into the image of Jesus. It's because that is the picture and the fullness of the wisdom of God. And my friends, if, if you're in a place where you say that you've never invited Jesus to come into your life, and I talk about this whole idea of Jesus being the wisdom of God. And you say, man, I've maybe known some stuff about God. I've known some stuff about Jesus. But I've never actually invited Jesus to come into my life. I've never asked Jesus to forgive me. Um, I, I've never, um, you know, I've, just, I, I've known stuff about him, but I've never known him. The way that you talk about knowing God and God molding and shaping your life, I have no idea what that is. I've never experienced that. Then listen, that's the first place that we start. We start in the place of asking, inviting Jesus to come into our lives. And when we do, we then begin to experience God working and seeking to make us people of wisdom. Because, my friends, we're, none of us are actually born children of God. We're all God's creation. But we become children of God when we invite God to be our Father. When we look to Jesus, our Savior, who died for us, and as we look to him now and we put our faith and hope and trust in his finished work as he died for us, as he was buried. And then when he rose again from the dead, here's what happens. Then we begin to experience what the Bible calls a new life. And so it's maybe some of you are here this morning and you say, that's why I'm here. All the other stuff was interesting. All the other stuff was important. All the other stuff was good. But this is the very moment 
and why God brought me here, why my friend brought me here, why somehow I ended up in this auditorium listening to you at this very moment. Listen, it has nothing to do with your friend, but everything to do with God orchestrating a series of circumstances for you to be here to hear the most important message, this message of how much God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world. And that by putting our faith in him that we could have eternal life and not perish. Listen, that message, that good news is the most important thing you're ever going to hear. And if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, then I invite you to make that decision. And as we're going to close in prayer in just a second, and, and I want to lead you in a prayer. And once again, uh, the prayer is not a magic formula. The prayer, it might be my words, but here's what I pray, is that even though they're my words, that maybe they can articulate what your heart wants to speak to God, but doesn't quite know the words to say. So if you're ready, let's pray together. God, I want to thank you so much for every person here. And I pray that you would help us to be people of wisdom. And yet at the same time, God, there's those of us that are here who have never made a decision to follow you. And so I ask and I pray. God, for those that are ready, for those that are willing, for those that are going to invite you into their lives, God, I pray that this would be the turning point and that they would experience your love, your peace, your grace, your acceptance, and your forgiveness at this very moment. Listen, those of you that want to make that decision, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer, and I want you to pray it out loud after me. Just say, Dear God, I open my heart. And I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to follow you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen.